0: Good evening. Good afternoon. We are continuing our study of translation and Bible difficulties. And this is part three. And I think that at some point, once I get everything the way I want it to be, I might put these notes on our website. Okay. And maybe we can make a note or something by the notes that it goes to this particular Wednesday night series or whatever.
1: Have you seen what I'm doing now? I have not, but I assume it looks great. <laughs> so on there now on the on the website on the podcast website um it has the notes from each um from your sermons on sunday specifically right so for that day i'll put your notes the stuff that you hand out yeah i'll put that in there for wednesday nights i've been just putting um as people listening to this probably know already um i just put You know, this is a free flow discussion and the fact that we, um, these are the, um, this is what we're talking about and
0: specific verses that we talked about. Okay, good, good. Maybe we can add these later. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to keep adding to it. Uh, we're not going to finish all of these tonight. We probably won't finish them all next week. And I just keep adding to it because we're doing a series, right? And I don't know when it'll end. We might end up switching to something else, but this is a fun, like you said, a free flow conversation about interesting verses and, and these are talked about online a lot. Okay. So some of the ones that I'm picking are ones that you would classify as controversial. Or if you were to type them in with certain keywords, yeah. you're going to see page after page after page of articles from different sides arguing over these particular passages. Right. So I'm just trying to look at these verses and show the reader that you can trust the word of God and the errors that people point to evaporate upon closer investigation. And that's all we're doing on Wednesdays is closely investigating these things. So one of these that we're going to start with tonight is in Exodus 2013. And you may be familiar with this already, but thou shalt not kill. Right. One of the Ten Commandments, right? We're actually not going to start in Exodus 2013 because that's the verse, right? But I want to compare how the term is used in Exodus 20 in other places of the Bible, like Numbers. And so we're actually going to start in Numbers 35, because this term in Hebrew, Ratzak, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, just forgive me, okay? I am a Gentile, and I'm from North Georgia. (laughs) So my Hebrew accent is probably not impeccable, to say the least. But anyways, in Numbers uh, 35, 11, and 30, we're going to look at a couple places where this is translated. And see how Exodus 20 can be made sense of, because what some people will say is in Exodus 20, when it talks about killing, that's a contradiction, because in other places in the Bible, God literally tells his people to kill in certain scenarios, whether right. it be capital punishment, or in Exodus chapter, I think it's 22, mentions killing in self-defense if somebody breaks into your house at night, and you strike them down so that they die. That person's blow will not be on your hands.
1: Go go, so, kill all
0: of those um, Amalekites. Yeah, exactly. So when it talks about killing, and then in Exodus 20, it says don't kill, people will say, well, God's contradicting himself. He's yeah. two-faced. Over here he's saying kill. Over here he's saying don't kill. Right. But we need to understand the terms involved. And so let's look at Numbers 35, 11, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the Hebrew involved. So in numbers 35:11 it says then ye shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you that the slayer may flee thither which killeth any person at unawares. So this is talking about accidental killing. So I've heard it described this way. Let's say you are on a ladder and you're passing down something to someone who's underneath you and you're not really paying attention to what you're doing. And let's say you're taking a stone and you're passing it down to this person and you throw that stone down. You're, you're being unceremonious about it and you drop the stone right on that guy's head. Right. And the guy dies. Yeah. Okay, that would be an example of what's being talked about. here. Sure. Okay. That person would then flee to a city of refuge. They were appointed cities. It's all talked right. about here. Yep. And then they would assess whether or not what this happens. was, yeah. yeah, like what happened here? Was it actual murder? If it wasn't murder, then the person would be cleared of guilt if it was truly an accident. Sure. So anyways, that's the context. So in verse 11, when it uses the word killeth in the KJV, killeth in Hebrew is ratzak. And it's a lot broader than first degree murder. So when modern translations, and this isn't necessarily wrong because in Exodus 20, verse 13, When it says don't kill, it is talking about killing in an unlawful manner. And we in modern English would would define um, unlawful taking of life as murder. That's the way we would define it uh, or explain it. And so it's not wrong necessarily to say you shall not murder. However, here, this is talking about accidental killing and the word in Exodus 20 would prohibit that too. So how do you, Prohibit accidental killing. Well, accidental killing would also be like a person getting behind the wheel of a car having a car drunk accident. alcohol. Oh, drinking that one. Yeah. Okay. This person has made a really bad choice. They run over somebody. Yeah. So did they intentionally run over this person? Of course they didn't. Um, if it was truly an accident, they didn't intend to do it. But it's not murder pre in a premeditated sense. So the word in Hebrew in Exodus 20 would prohibit not only killing intentionally, but killing through irresponsibility, through negligence. So, you know, we talk to our kids all the time about how you can prevent accidents, right? You'll get on to them for doing something and they'll say, well, it was just an accident, but could you have prevented that accident? Right. Yes, they could have. Okay. Thus the guilt, not the same kind of guilt, not the same degree of guilt, but it's still guilt. So I would say that the term as it's used in Exodus is not exclusively referring to premeditated first degree murder. It's referring to a broader category, and that's why I think the King James translators, and probably not just the King James, there may be some other translations that render it this way. I wonder if the MEV renders it this way, but kill would get both of those in there. It would get in kill the killing is, through negligence and the murdering. Right. The, the um, MEV does say the word Okay. So Mm. I don't know what the new King James says, but I would venture to guess that it's probably the same. I think it is. But those are a few translations that keep the term general enough to include the Hebrew ideas of both killing by negligence and killing through premeditated murder. So what's the word you say it is? It's uh, if you were to transliterate it, it's R-A-T-S-A-C-H. That's what I thought. And I'm
1: looking at um, this is what app is this? This is eSword, eSword, um, and they show that word uh, under Strong's as naka, <clears throat> naka. Well, a- and that's why I'm asking. Is well, there a no, difference that's here? it's a
0: good question. I mean, there are multiple words used to slay and to murder and to kill. So I'm gonna real quick use Explorer. my phone that you gave me. Did I? You did give me this phone, huh. and it's actually pretty quick, so it shouldn't take me long to look up this verse. My other phone would have taken us ages to do that. So I hope that I wrote this down right. I mean, I, I took these notes the other day. No, I mean, I got it right here. Um, for Exodus 2013, it is Strong's 7,523 is the number, okay. and the standard form, of course, it you know it's conjugated in different ways, but sure. um Ratsah means to murder or to slay in Strong's concordance. And the Brown Driver's Brig says murder or slay. Okay. And it includes manslaughter without intent. And it lists numbers thirty five as a place where the term is used. So let me real quick. Yeah, it uses uh numbers thirty five thirty. Yeah, numbers
1: thirty five eleven is the other word. Strange. It's the yeah. other word,
0: okay um okay come on have that right. hurry up go faster phone okay so anyways numbers 35 30 is one of the references that i have here it has mecha that's true but it does have ratzak later in the verse so we'll, let's look at that verse the so numbers yeah. um 35 30 yes Whoso killeth any person that is mecha Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Hmm. Um, So when it talks about the putting to death by the mouth of witnesses, that is capital punishment. That's lawful. And the term is Rutsach. So that shows that the term Rutsach in that case doesn't even refer to killing by negligence. And that's where I was going with that. It has a broader meaning and it includes capital punishment, which is lawful. And then numbers thirty-five eleven. Yeah, what do you have it as? Yeah. I mean
1: the real the real question is which which app has the actual. <laughs> no, you know I mean saying, e- you know?
0: that is that uh, that is correct. It is um, maque. It's actually pronounced maque. It's um, Strong's five thousand two hundred right. And and twenty-one. That is what it is in numbers 3511. Okay. Um still kill, make slaughter,
1: murder, punish, slaughter, slay, smite, so, strike.
0: Yes. Um but no, the word rots uh right Ratosh. here, man man slayer is 7523. So it is in there. <laughs> sure. It is there. It's just it's not tr- translated literally as kill in the interlinear. So in the interlinear Bible, um it's manslayer. That's how they would render the participle. It's actually a verb, so it's a uh, call participle. A and so it's uh, there. You go. I see. wrote sick. Rotsek, sorry, Wrote That's how you would pronounce it. Rotsecha. and uh, it is from Ratsah. Again, that's the right seventy-five twenty standard. And so yeah, it's there. Okay, that's where I was going with it. I'm sorry. I didn't. Make <laughs> You're making it me second standard. guess myself. But sorry. no, I'm glad that we did that because that clears some stuff up. So, anyways. Numbers 35, 11, and Numbers 30, 35, 30, both include ratsak in one form or another, yeah. and it's used in 11 as manslaughter, and it's used in verse 30 as capital punishment. So it's a very broad term. It just means to slay. Whether yes. you slay with intent, whether you slay accidentally, or whether right. you slay according to God's judgment, it sure. means to slay. So anyways... uh There's no contradiction there. The reason that I wanted to do this example is because I remember in eighth grade, not eighth grade, sorry, it was a little bit later than that. I think it may have been sophomore year, but I did a presentation. I had to do a public speaking thing in my English literature class. Okay. And I, because I was a Christian, I wanted to try to put my faith in there somewhere. Sure. So I did the English Bible. And since the English Bible was in the Renaissance, and that was covering the period that I was supposed to talk Mm -hmm. about, lots of different topics that were about the Renaissance um, in that class. I can't remember hardly any of the ones that the students shared, but I remember doing the one on the Bible. Mm. And afterwards, a lot of people started talking to me. I had brought in my Hebrew, Greek, and linear Bible to show students that this is the original language. This is what it looks like. Sure. And so it was kind of cool. Had a good conversation with a number of them. Uh one guy came up though and said, Yeah, in the Bible it says thou shalt not kill, but there's all these examples of God telling people to kill other kill, people. Yeah. And, so, and so what does that mean? Now it wasn't really a question asked with the intent to learn, though. You could tell yeah, it was yeah, more yeah. of an objection, but yeah. uh I did go to that place and I and I showed him the word and I did my best at the time. I mean it's yeah, a yeah. sophomore year of high school. I did my best to pronounce the word. I was learning a little bit of Hebrew just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I know that's kind of weird, but (laughs) I, um, I pronounced the word and I I said, this word is a lot broader than just to murder. So, um, it includes these ideas. So there's not really a contradiction. If you understand the word involved, Mm. um, obviously God says don't murder, but when it says don't kill here, it's not saying don't kill without exception. It's talking about a specific type of of killing that God is prohibiting. And the reason the word kill is used in the broad sense is because when you go from Hebrew to English, you, you got to pick a word. Right. right? And I think that, and I I think that everybody, well, not everybody, (laughs) uh, most people listening to this perhaps would agree that when it comes to any Bible translation, even if one is without demonstrable error, like, I mean, it's, it's sound. Okay. It's not going to carry over every nuance. From the original language, oh, no. it's just not possible, right? And if it did, then there'd be no purpose in studying the Hebrew and the Greek, and I think that that'd be foolish. It's very rewarding to study Hebrew and Greek, so even if we could say that's not an error, yeah. um, it, you may be able to get something out of it by going to the underlying Hebrew text or Greek text, depending on which testament you're in. So, right, um, I find that it's insightful for this commandment thou shalt not kill to look at the hebrew because it shows us that there really is no inconsistency in the bible here god's not saying on the one hand don't kill in an absolute sense and then over here well i want you to kill i want you to kill this person in capital punishment i want you to you know kill to protect your family i want you to go kill these different nations like right. so god's not contradicting himself there anyways
1: i I mean in in every well not every language a lot of different languages other than english because english is apparently very bland have different meanings for you know we'll have the one for instance we have the one word snow right for snow that's it's snow it's a wet snow whatever Mm -hmm. but the inuit or the eskimos they have i don't know 50 50 words yeah for the word snow
0: wow so that's insane
1: right so that's why makes sense. digging into this <laughs> kind of you know you you really have to understand the meaning of the word and and the application mm-hmm. so yeah
0: absolutely and that's that's one of the disadvantages of of translation uh right. you you do you do get the general essential idea right but like with the different kinds of snow in English, when you're translating, okay, he picked up and then used one of those words, okay, mm-hmm. one of those 50 words he picked up in English, it had to be snow.
1: <laughs> right. You know,
0: and you might qualify it somehow to try to, but really, if you were just gonna go word for word, you gotta pick a word to keep it simple, right? Yeah. So you'd say snow. He picked up snow. Yeah. But for a person who spoke that language, Inuit, they'd say yeah. well, that's not adequate. You need more, right? It's not necessarily wrong. Yeah, sure. this is snow, but yeah. it, there's more to it than right. just snow, right? Exactly right. So, anyways, it's the same way with Bible translations. So, mm-hmm. every time someone is pointed out, there's an error. I've always been able to look it up and say, "Well, it may appear that way. You just got to do a little bit of research, right?" But again, that's the nature of translation. You have to be aware of the original language um so anyways that is one particular issue that i wanted to look at now we're going to talk about one that's just fun i don't know how anybody could be interested in this and of course i have kids all the time that ask me it, are unicorns in the bible oh it's awesome and i'm well, like yeah. e, kind of <laughs> so take your bibles and turn to numbers 23 so we were just in numbers 35 so numbers 23 22, there are lots of references to unicorns in the King James Bible and modern versions do not have unicorns at all. So this is one of those things that people will say the King James is, is inaccurate here. And I do appreciate, and I recommend for anybody that's listening to check out answers in Genesis that website. There's a really good article by, I think it's, um, I think it's Georgia Purdom. Hmm. Um, I think that's the author of the article, but it's a extensive article on unicorn. It's not one of their short summary articles. It's a pretty long article, but it goes into this issue really well. And I think it gives a very good assessment. Tim Chafee, who also works for answers in Genesis, but he's got his own apologetics website. It's called Midwest apologetics. He's got an article on this too, and they're both exceptional, really good. So anyways, let's look at numbers 23, verse 22. God brought them out of Egypt he hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. So I have a footnote here, and I recommend this study Bible. It's a good Bible to have on your shelf. Okay? So the Define King James Version, it gives lots of definitions, and the person who created this built-in dictionary looked into the dictionaries that represent the English used at the time that the 1611 KJV was made. Right. Because there have been some changes in, in words, obviously. A unicorn. He defines it here as an obscure word, one horned rhinoceros used in the Middle English Old Testament to render the Latin Vulgate unicornis or rhinoceros and retained in later versions. Hebrew is probably the great aurochs or wild bulls, which are now extinct. But the exact meaning is not known. And that's a really good summary of this whole issue. Sure. So the Latin word unicornis is still. In zoology, used to describe the one horned Indian rhinoceros. Sure. Okay. So, when they used the word unicorn to translate this, they were not envisioning a fluffy white horse with a horn that poops rainbows, that poops rainbows or skittles or whatever. <laughs> they were not thinking of that. So, for the skeptics, if you happen to be a skeptic, just do a little bit of study. Okay. You can fact check me on this, but unicornus is still used and at the time was used to refer to a rhinoceros. Right. And to give additional proof of this, I'm going to give you some more references. But the official Latin name for an Indian rhinoceros is Rhinoceros unicornus. It's called that because it has one horn as opposed to two. So the African rhinoceros, if you were to see them, they have more than one horn. One's more prominent than the other, the one in front. Is more prominent than the one in back, right, right. behind it. Uh, but the Indian rhinoceros just has that single horn. That's why it's pretty unique. Um, in Isaiah thirty-four seven, in the margin of the King James. So if you don't have a sixteen eleven, get one because it's also got a lot of marginal notes, and it shows that these. Translators, they understood that the Hebrew sometimes had that nuance, it's hard to carry over. Mm-hmm. And because they weren't exactly sure which nuance to go with, right. they put it in the margin. And so yep. in Isaiah 34 7, it says unicorn, but in the margin it says rhinoceros. And unicornus in Latin means literally one horned. Uh, now in Hebrew, what's the term? So that's the question. So that justifies the King James translators' um, use of. A term that may seem fabulous or fantastical, but it's talking about a real world animal. Right. Okay. But the question is is a one horned rhinoceros the best interpretation or translation of the Hebrew term? So the Hebrew term, this is like a hard one to pronounce. I think it's Ruim. So it's like yeah. a aim. So I think it's more like a rame. If you yeah. were to pronounce it quick, I'm just gonna say rame. Like because saying the word backwards, ring <laughs> rame. Yeah, it's. I'm just gonna say rame because right. it's easy for me to do. Um, but if you were to transliterate it, it would be r e e m. But anyways, uh, in Psalm 92 verse 10, it suggests one horn. Um, so let's look at that real quick. This is one of those verses that is often pointed to to justify. The one horned interpretation. Um, say Psalm 92. 10. It's a Psalm 92.10. I'm turning there myself. Um, okay. This is, I assume, David. I uh, don't think that it's necessarily part of the Psalm title that it's David. It but, doesn't say. Um, but Psalm 92, verse 10 But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn i shall be anointed with fresh oil okay um and again the footnote here in the Define king james tells us all the same thing unicornus rhinoceros etc uh however there's a controversial verse and it's in deuteronomy 33 where it also translates it as unicorn but this particular verse seems to suggest more than one horn. And if it does have more than one horn, you can't call it a unicorn. unicorn. What was it again? I'm sorry. It's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. 33, 17, Deuteronomy 33:17. 17. So this is the one where they accuse the King James translators of making an oopsie. And uh, it appears that way at first. So let's look at it. So, Deuteronomy 33, 17. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns.
1: That doesn't make any sense. With
0: right? them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Okay, so the horns of the unicorns here is obviously referring to Joseph's descendants. Okay, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, but some people will say that the Hebrew term, Reim, refers to an oryx or a wild bull. And so a wild bull has two very prominent horns. The oryx had very large horns. Very large, yep. Um, So that's what they think it's referring to. However, it has been argued, and not just by the KGV translators, it's been argued that um, the term here for unicorn is, though literally singular, it's functionally... Plural. So if you were to look at the Hebrew, the word reim is not plural here. So horns of unicorns wouldn't really tell you how many horns the unicorns have. It could just be, okay, you got a bunch of animals and the horns that belong to those animals. So that maintains, from the King James perspective, that. Unicorns have one horn. You're talking Mm. about a group of unicorns, so they have lots of horns, you know, among them, right? Sure. So that's how they rendered it. However, some people accuse them of changing the term in Hebrew from singular as it is to plural just to make unicorn work. So that's the argument, right? But there's actually an ancient example of other Jewish translators, or not other, because the King James. Or Jewish translators, but, uh, Jewish translators rendering it in a similar way. So the Jewish translators of the LXX, they translated the singular Reim with the singular monoceratos. Monoceratos. Mm. And this refers to a one horned animal in yes. the Greek. Yes. So this is, this is not like the other portions of the Greek Bible, which some came much later these are these first five books are probably the oldest out of all the Greek Bible. And they probably right. were translated by a group of Greek scholar or Jewish scholars who knew Greek, right, uh, a couple hundred years right. before Christ, right? Mm-hmm. The others were probably translated over an extended period of time and added later on. Mm-hmm. You can tell the styles are very different. Right. But there is a unity to the first five books. So these Jewish translators, they saw the singular word reim. And they had no problem um, translating this as monoceratos, even though that kind of conflicts with the plural horns. The horns yeah. of a one horned animal. Yeah. So where did they get off doing that? Well, it's common knowledge that sometimes you can have a singular term have a plural meaning depending on how it's used. And one example that is given is in Isaiah eleven seven. 7. Isaiah eleven seven, 7. And this is talking about the millennial kingdom. It's an awesome passage. And it says, And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones. Uh, or sorry. And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Right. So here, it's not talking about Like there's literally one cow and one bear. Right. It's talking about a class. Right. So what is argued is that the term in Hebrew, raim is a generic term. So it's a class of animals. Sure. And that's why the King James translators rendered it plural, because even though literally it's not plural, it's a class. Yes. So if you were bringing that into English, the most natural way to translate it would be, Plural with an S at the end. So unicorns right. rather than unicorn. Um, so that's one of those things. It's, it's kind of iffy. You know, I, I can see someone making an argument for an oryx with two yeah. horns. Okay. I, I can look at the text and I can see that as reasonable. However, I wouldn't say that the way the King James translators have it is an error because they weren't the first people to come up with this idea. And they also had something else on their side, so I'm going to give you um, a little more information. Oh, by the way, I have a note here. It wasn't Georgia Purdom who wrote that article. It was Elizabeth Mitchell on the Answers in Genesis website. Okay. But she points out that the KJV translators, they drew from the wisdom of Jewish Hebrew experts. So in their time, there were a number of really famous rabbis that wrote books and published those books that was introducing Hebrew grammar to Gentiles. Sure. And so they were very much aware of these. And one of them was David Kimchi. I've heard of that name before, yeah. And so these are, um, these are people who knew Hebrew really well, but they maintained that in this particular place in Deuteronomy thirty three seventeen, that unicorns had one horn. So there's a number of rabbis from the Middle Ages, right, who would say that raim in Hebrew is definitely referring to an animal with one horn. Now, they weren't all in agreement. There were some people who believed that they had more than one horn, but some of the more prominent Hebrew scholars that the KJV translators were aware of, they made commentaries on texts just like this. Right. And they believed that the ram was a single-horned animal. For example, uh, Abraham Yagel, he's a rabbi. I think he was um, an Italian Jew. He mentions that a single-horned rame had been captured and brought to Portugal. And the way he describes it, it fits what with what we know about a, a rhinoceros. Okay. So he is calling this animal a rain. And so you could say, oh, well, that's, you know, medieval rabbi. Yeah. At the time he thinks that Hebrew term is a, a rhinoceros. Sure. But how do you know it meant that way back when? Well, we don't know, right? That's why it's right. a translation difficulty. <laughs> so But go. So, ahead.
1: So my question is, what did what did the what did how can I going put this? What did the guys in sixteen eleven think a
0: unicorn was? Okay. They thought a unicorn was a single horned rhinoceros.
1: Okay. Yes. So how did we get and this is whatever, right? This is non-biblical. How did we get from that to a unicorn of a horse
0: with one you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, well okay. Did the, where so, did that come from? Yeah, definitely fabulous. Yeah. Lots of fantastical stuff accumulates around truth and there there are a lot of things like that that we're looking at in this particular series that sure. are just like that where you have the popular conception of something like unicorn being completely different from what it was to people back then. Yeah. So there was the popular view which in some cases did exist back then but then there was the people who were like yeah, they're unicorns but they don't look anything like that. Right. And for example, I want to quote this from Marco Polo. So sure. he's living in the 13th century. Yeah. And so he goes to uh, Sumatra, or he's describing the unicorns in Sumatra. I don't know if he actually went there, but, anyways. Yeah. He says, they have wild elephants and plenty of unicorns, which are scarcely smaller than elephants. They have the hair of a buffalo and feet like an elephant's. They have a single large black horn in the middle of the forehead. They are very ugly brutes to look at. They are not at all such as we describe them when we relate that they let themselves be captured by virgins, but they are clean contrary to our notions. So he's looking at these animals and he's saying, these are unicorns. What is a unicorn? It's a one horn animal. But he said the one horn animals that we're used to talking about in our stories, like that we tell to our kids, you. Okay. nothing like this one horn. We're
1: talking about a, rino- a rhinoceros. Yeah. He says, this is, Redemption this is
0: what it is. Okay. And it's yes, nothing like our stories. Um, uh, but what's interesting is he's seems to be describing a type of rhinoceros that's not in existence anymore. Right. Uh, so there are no rhinoceros today that are almost the size of an elephant. Like right. as, elephants are bigger than rhinoceros. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, if you were to, if you were to compare, let's take an African rhinoceros and compare it to an African elephant, right? Okay. An elephant towers over rhinoceros. Yeah. So he, he seems to be saying that they're much bigger, but even besides that, the hair, he says the hair of a buffalo. Yeah. And while there are some Sumatran rhinos today that have hair, it's very short. Interesting. It's nothing like a buffalo.
1: It's okay. so possible that he, he's, you know, maybe.
0: So, so what, what, what some people have said is he's describing what's called an elasmotherium or the woolly rhinoceros. So we have from the, the fossil record um, yes. remains of the woolly rhinoceros. And they were huge. They were the same size roughly as elephants. Right. So if it's the description here, scarcely smaller than elephants. I yeah. mean, they, they are comparable to the size of elephants. They're covered in shaggy black hair and they have a single prominent horn. No joke. Wow. Um, and I'm pretty sure from my recollection of the fossil reconstructions, they had a single black horn. You might want to look that yeah. up, but it's called an elasmithium. It's huge. Like this horn is nothing like modern day rhinoceros. At all. I mean, it it is insane. And it was actually attached to the skull. Modern-day rhinoceros don't have true horns. They have horns that are made out of keratin, which is just fused hair. Right. So the elasmotherium actually had a real horn, like, I I suppose, like an elephant's tusk, okay, or similar to it. So look up a picture of it, and you'll be very much impressed.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, woolly rhinoceros. I got word in my mouth today. Um to do, do do this is saying interesting. And this is just this of course is wiki, which is these days is just gone off.
0: Oh. In, a rhino, in a I mean a rhinoceros is big, y'all, but if you were to look at a, a an elasma I just want you to go on Google and do a size comparison of a regular rhinoceros, as you might see in a movie, you know, on Safari. Yes. Compare that to an elasmotherium. Elasmotherium is much larger. It's twice as big. Yeah, this is... So, Yeah. that seems to be what Marco Polo have seen in the 13th century. And sure. I've actually seen people say, woolly rhinoceros may actually have lived alongside people. Well, you know, and in, rec- in recent history, and, and they'll say that as if it's really insightful. <laughs> it's it's like, like, well, of course they did. You know, we as Bible believers know that they lived alongside him. Yes. But uh just could, like the mammoths
1: did. And, you know,
0: so another thing that I've read is that an Indian rhinoceros, a one horn Indian rhinoceros, they're pretty placid animals, so they're not really violent. Uh, But in Job 39, apparently uh, the unicorn was such that, I mean, you don't mess with a unicorn. It's listed up there with unicorn, behemoth, Leviathan. So yeah. it's progressively we're talking about, you know, bigger and badder. But the unicorn is such that you can't domesticate it. Okay, if you try to to domesticate yeah. it, you try to capture it. All right, you're it's probably gonna die. Yes. So an alazmotheryum seems to fit this a little bit more than maybe a modern day rhino. Yes. Because modern day rhinos, like, yeah, we can capture them and put them in zoos and you know domesticate them to an extent. You know. So it may be that uh, this type of animal that's described in the Bible, the unicorn, the rain was a lot more vicious than anything we had today, even though it was related yes. to the rhinoceros that live in our time. Um, another thing, and just, this is the last thing I want to mention about it. Um, there is this idea floating around among some young earth creationists that the unicorn may in fact be a dinosaur. And the reason they say that is because there have been fossil remains discovered of one horn dinosaurs. And they are, they are, um, if you read Job 39, 40, and 41 and Job 40 and 41, we have dinosaurian animals described.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And
0: so the unicorns described in, in 39. And so some people suggest maybe we're talking about the biggest animals that ever lived. Mm. And were there any one horned animals that, you know, were dinosaurs? Yeah, there were. And, Absolutely, you know, yeah. the centrosaurus. The monoclonius, these are some, some types of one-horned dinosaurs. In fact, the Ishtar Gate, which I think in the late 1800s yeah, or early yeah, 1900s, yeah. was excavated yeah. and restored. Uh, the chief archaeologist was Robert Holdaway. He was a German. Uh, he noticed that there was this animal that looked dinosaurian. So you have all these different animals that are recognizable, like a lion. And you could see all these different mm. kinds. And then you get to this one, and it's called the Sarouche. And the sarouche is, if you look it up, and it's spelt S-I-R-R-U-S-H, the sarouche has one horn. So it walks on four legs. It's got a longish tail. You okay. know, it's a scaled creature. It's definitely reptilian, but it's got one horn. And he believed, this is kind of funny, this is you know, when people were still learning about dinosaurs and maybe evolution hadn't become such as much a dogma. Right. But this guy, Robert Coldaway, believed the Saroosh was some type of dinosaur, maybe like an iguanodon. So he was arguing that this animal was describing not a mythological creature, as many people, but they believe, but this was describing a real animal that lived in the past that the Babylonians were aware of. Right. So there's a possibility. And I want to read you this. This is from... Um, I found this on, I think, Genesis Park. It's a great website. Okay. Uh, but he's quoting from The Horned Dinosaurs, A Natural History by Peter Dotson. Um, and this is what it says. In his classic work, Naturalist Historia, the first century author, Pliny the Elder, described an exceedingly wild beast called the monoceros, which is what we found, by the way, in the Septuagint. Okay. Okay. The monoceros. You're right. It makes a deep, lowing noise. It has one black horn, two cubits long, and it projects from the middle of its forehead. He describes it as like an elephant in length, but with much shorter legs. Other classic authors, like Alien, they spe- spelt A-E-L-I-A-N, Opian and Marshall also mention a nose horned creature called a rhinoceros. That's where I'm sure we get rhinoceros from. Sure. Some claim that the rhinoceros sharpens its horn on a rock and utilizes it in fighting elephants. This is the root word from which we get the modern name rhinoceros. But the ancient descriptions do not fit the rhino very well, even though some species do have one horn. Rhinos do not have a true horn that attaches to the skull. Rather, it is made of keratin, a hair-like substance that is similar to our fingernails. The correlation between the classical authors and some modern cryptozoological reports is striking. Dr. Roy Mackle's explorations in the Congo brought back reports of a rare single-horned animal called and Ntuka, or killer of elephants. In a recent expedition, pygmies in Cameroon identified the horned creature, they're called the Ngubu, identified it with a Ceratopsian dinosaur and claimed that it could sport from one to four horns. Indeed, modern researchers believe that the Ceratopsian dinosaurs likely did use their great horn for combat in quote. Huh. So there are reports coming out of Africa of large animals that don't fit the description of rhinos, but they are one horned animals yes. and they're comparable in size to elephants. They have thick tails, by the way, the Melan there is uh, some local artwork that you can see a picture of it on the Genesis park website. And it does kind of have flappy ears. So it kind of looks like an elephant, but it's got one horn, mm. no tusks, And it's got a very thick tail, unlike hippos, rhinos, elephants. So it's like, okay, take away the flappy ears, which you might chalk up to stylistic, you know, expression. Uh, It looks very much like a dinosaur, and it's big enough to kill elephants, thus earning the name killer of elephants. So one wonders could the unicorn, because all the word means, by the way, as we have it in the Hebrew and as we have it in the English, is just a one horned animal. Right. And it's a vicious one. So it could be an extinct species of rhino. That's so vicious that it's unlike modern day rhinos. That's a possibility. hundred percent, but there's also that tentative possibility that it might be an extinct dinosaur. So I'm just leaving that out there. I don't know. Like, and I don't think I ever will know (laughs) until, you know, all things are fulfilled and I can ask Jesus these questions. Amen. Uh, but right now, all we could say is unicorn definitely doesn't refer to the fluffy, the fluffy horse, in the woods, horse in the woods that the virgins lure in and yeah, make and their wives. pets and grant their wishes, their okay? Whatever. All that stuff. So there's no error whenever people Correct. render this as unicorn, okay? One more, and I think that's all we have time for. Okay. I don't know what time it is.
1: Um, it is... But uh, I assume we have time. 30. It's yeah, what? Lots of time. Okay, eight good.
0: 30. Awesome. We're moving pretty well. Uh, So Deuteronomy 2317, turn there, and we're going to talk about one that's kind of gross, guys. And I Uh, just, just saying that right there, gross, come on. Just when I I said that right there, there's all automatically going to be some people who probably turn us off whenever they hear what I'm about to say next. But we're going to talk about the word sodomite. Oh, I know it's like I don't even want to talk about it now, but we got to talk about it because it's a controversial issue now, and I think that it is something worthy of discussion even though I don't like talking about it.
1: Yes, I remember now.
0: So in Deuteronomy 23, 17, this is just one example. There are a number, but I just picked this one out. It says, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Sodomite. In modern translations, this is generally rendered as cult Cult prostitute. prostitute. When it's talking about a male, a male cult prostitute. And it's rendered that way quite often in many modern versions. Now, is that correct? And why does this even matter? Well, King James advocates will argue that it's toning down a term. Sodomite clearly refers to homosexuality. It's referred to that since people looked at uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and they said, OK, we're going to take the word sodomite, which first referred to an inhabitant of the city of Sodom, and we're going to make it a, a catchphrase for homosexuality. Mm. And, and even beyond that, just perversions that are against nature. Yeah. Well, and, sodomy as well. And, is, and it's yeah. exactly. And it's been used that way for hundreds of years in the English yes. language. So when the King James translators used this, when they saw this word okay, in Kadesh. the original language, which for the male, it's Kadesh. Yeah. When it says whore, it's Kadeshah. They okay. said Kadesh refers to a sexual deviant that's male. So in English, what do you call a sexual deviant that's male? A sodomite. That, yes. was, that was the term. And even today, it's still used, even though it's fallen out of popularity for sure. obvious reasons. But as homosexuality has become more and more accepted by our culture, there seems to be this desire when we're rendering the Bible into English and modern versions kind of tone down the negative connotation of the word sodomite, because sodomite's never a positive term. Right. So male cult prostitute, it kind of makes any immorality attached to idolatry. So some people argue and they have made this argument mm. that it's not speaking against homosexuality in general. It's speaking about the cult. The cult prostitution, a dedication to false gods. Yes, there may have been homosexuality that took place in that context, but the sin of it was that it was dedicated to a false God and it was outside of the true religion. Of course, that argument breaks down because there are many other places where it's not in any way associated with idolatry or prostitution, and the Bible still condemns homosexuality. I mean, so I don't think that one can really gain much by changing it from sodomite to male cult prostitute, but it seems like that's just one symptom of this broader issue. Yeah. And it's funny that these changes are not just happening here in the old Testament with, with sodomite, but in the new Testament, when Paul talks about the effeminate, um, Romans one, I think the effeminate is in, uh, first Corinthians six, but yes, Romans one, you're right. They'll say that that's talking about, uh, an abusive homosexual relationship. That's talking about catamites, uh, adult males having boys for that purpose. Yes. And uh, that definitely was a practice, and they'll say that is what's being referred to. However, Paul clearly says that men worked with men and women worked with women, that which right. was shameful, and he puts the guilt on both parties, not just on one. That's right. So this is not a non-consensual abuse relationship. This is a consensual relationship, and he's condemning it. Yes. So today, if you say consensual homosexual relationships are acceptable, Paul would say wrong. Right. Okay. And you know better because your conscience speaks against it, even if you say different. So anyways, we're not going to go to Romans one. We're going to stay here in the old Testament, but what do the terms mean? Well, why did the King James translators understand this to refer to homosexuals because the medieval rabbis did. Mm. So it was, it was common knowledge among the Hebrew scholars at the time that Kadesh referred to homosexuality. In fact, they would look at it this way. Um, They would say, Let me find my place here. Where is it? Here it is. Okay. So Rashi, one of the rabbis that I'm referring to, and another was, uh, Arbor Mm Banel, probably pronouncing that wrong. Arbor Banel, Arbor Banel. But Rashi argues that Kedeshah, Hor, and Kadesh, which is translated here as sodomite. They mean unbridled or prepared. And unbridled or prepared is a reference to basically, uh, like throwing off the restrictions that the Bible places on sex as in one man, one woman in, in marriage and having sex outside of those natural relations. So for a woman here, prostitution is fitting. Okay. That term would be an accurate representation of the term. Um, but specifically with the word Kadesh as applied to a man, Rashi would say that a man who's unbridling himself, is giving himself over to unnatural sexual relations, so not just heterosexual relations outside of marriage, right. but homosexual yes. relations and bestial relations. So that yes. would be included as well. So this is not limited just to homosexuality, um, but that's definitely included in it. And homosexuality was considered deviant, right, according to God and according to the ancient Hebrews. So Rashi and other scholars. They rendered it that way. That's how they understood it. And that we actually have commentators by them that mm. show the way that they handled the Hebrew terms. And I read it. I'm not going to pretend that I understood all of it, but I sure. encourage you to check it out because it's on websites for free. Uh, another thing in verse 18, when it talks about a dog, it says thou shalt bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog. This is where it's kind of uncomfortable, but the word dog kaleb in Hebrew many scholars have noted this is a euphemism for a homosexual because of the position involved yeah so won't say any more than yeah, that yeah. but it's a picturesque way of describing a person who has unbridled themselves and gotcha. has given themselves over to unnatural relations um in fact there are many depictions in ancient right art that you know, cement this idea. But huh. again, the word "dog" is commonly used to refer to a man involved in homosexual acts. Uh, also, among the Hebrews, I mean, it would have a negative connotation because dogs are unclean animals, and so you know, a dog returns to its vomit. Okay, these are yeah. these are uh, image images of uncleanliness that would go along with the idea of homosexual practices being filthy in the eyes of God. But Again, uh, this doesn't just prohibit uh, prostitution um, in in the sense as we would understand it today. Uh, Some people think that. They'll think that this is talking just about prostitution. Uh, But the Hebrew rabbis seem to understand it to mean more than that, that it was an unbridling of oneself sexually in general. And verse 18 is talking about Uh, prohibiting any financial gain from that immorality so verse 17 is prohibiting the immorality in general okay and verse 18 is prohibiting bringing in any gain from the immorality to the temple so if you get any money from you know unbridling yourself sexually then that would be prohibited so rather than taking this and putting it in some uh supposed cultic context where these people are in another temple dedicated to another God and, and, and they're practicing this as part of their worship. It's a general prohibition of sexual immorality. And it's a prohibition of taking that immorality and getting any gain financially from it. So it it, it prohibits both. Yeah. Whether you're doing it simply for pleasure, or you're doing it to get money out of it. It's prohibited. Right. Uh, and I'm going to quote this. This is from uh, the pinnic took translate and explained by Samson Raphael Hirsch. So this is a Jewish source. Right. Um, this is not a King James only source. This is respected Jewish source. And I found it on KJVtoday.net. It's got some good sources on that website. So I'm going to quote it. The word Kadesh signifies a person who is sexually immoral in a general sense. There shall be no one dedicated to immorality of the daughters of Israel, and no one dedicated to immorality of the sons of Israel. Just, just as Kadosh is the complete surrender to what is morally lofty and good, so is Kadesh the surrender to what is morally low and bad. An analogy can be found in the root Kavar, which is as Kavor, designates the impression of the spiritual moral content and as Kavar the impression of the material content. hope I'm pronouncing those terms right. There are no vowel pointings in this quote. Anyways, continuing the quote, immorality is every sexual intercourse which has not had the the dedication of sanctification. Mm. So this Hebrew commentator is saying that the terms are kind of a play on words with the words for holy. So the word kadosh, holy, sanctified, set apart. Kadesh is a play on words, but in a negative sense. Right. So if Kadosh is set apart for God, dedicated to God, the sanctity of marriage, as God has designed it in Genesis chapter two, Mm. Kadesh is the exact opposite of that. Gotcha. Whether it is heterosexual outside of marriage, homosexual or bestial, um, it's condemning all of it in one fell swoop. And the word sodomite, if you were to look up the definition of this term as it was originally used in 1611. It included not only homosexuality, but all other kinds of unnatural sexual relations. So it didn't exclusively just refer to homosexuality. It was a lot broader than that. So going back to whether or not this term fits, if you were to look in the Hebrew, it's not going to be literally sodomite. Mm. It's not going to be related to the root sodom. Right. Okay. But the English term, in its meaning and its definition, adequately explains. We're talking about. that is here in the Hebrews. So yes, I think that sodomite is a good translation and it doesn't pull any punches. It conveys exactly what it was meant to convey. Anybody that hears that word today, they know what it means. I mean, we're here in 2022. And we know. But if you were to refer to a homosexual as a sodomite, they're not going to say, oh, yes, I'm a proud sodomite. Okay. Yeah. One day no, they might. They
1: probably, I think we're close to that. Already. Well,
0: they might say I'm proud to be, you know, yeah. Homosexual, but sodomite again has almost of an insulting connotation to it. And, uh, well, I
1: think there's that whole, you know, anti God thing. So I do think that possibly you would have people that would, you know,
0: isn't that amazing? Yeah, I know. Because,
1: it's, I mean, look at, look at, um, take us down a rabbit trail, but look at, um, Burning Man. You know, I'm talking about Burning Man that they have every year. Yeah, know, yeah, running, yeah. Right? Uh-huh utah is that where it is utah somewhere out west huh? nevada utah i forget um and this year the, it they had a um they had a a sand not a sandstorm but it was the caustic salt and stuff storm mm-hmm. that basically they had whiteouts throughout throughout the end of it like it was the last few days of it so they are basically it was like you know, they, they couldn't see and it took them like, I don't know, at least eight hours to get out of there at the end on Monday.
0: Oh, wow. But,
1: you know, I was looking at it. It was like, oh, that's crazy. I was looking at the pictures and the stuff that they're doing there is. Sodom, sodomites. Yeah. And they probably would say, oh, yeah, me too.
0: God help us. Uh, you're right. Amen, right. You're so right. I mean, I we're, definitely, where we're, at. we're definitely We're definitely. We're definitely that place. But again, there was a time, even 10 years ago. Oh yeah. I mean, where the word was definitely, we know that's not what we'll call ourselves. Right. But, okay. We'd prefer to maybe be called gay or something, but we yes. don't call us that. That's right. You know, um, uh, and I've even heard people say, Oh, the chief sin of, of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't homosexuality. It was in hospi- <laughs> It was being unhospital.
1: Uh, like, no, I'm there. pretty sure it wasn't. Like, no. I mean,
0: um, uh, let them out so we may know them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, oh goodness. Um, but I think that we we're just seeing little changes at a time, and yeah. that's what gives me a red flag. It's whenever little changes like that take place. It's not gonna happen in a flood. Mm. Apostasy has been happening for a while now. I right. think it's been happening since the eighteen hundreds. Really, I think as far as like the Christian community yes. in Europe and in America, it's really been since the 1800s. Um, even during the, the age of enlightenment, you had some really loud vocal people, but the church stood its ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the 1800s, there were just little things here or there that led to that slippery slope. Um, inerrancy, uh, the text of scripture, um, just Darwinism. just Darwinism. I mean, uh the virgin birth. I, I actually remember reading something by, I think it was uh B.B. Warfield. Um, yeah. And the fact that Mary was raped, that one? Uh, no, it wasn't that. I, I don't think he said that. Um, no. But what he did say was Do we really need the virgin birth? Oh and God. while he did seem to affirm it, I was shocked to hear that many people said that Warfield was a conservative. Mm. And yet he's here saying, we don't really need the virgin birth. What, he's like, what if hypothetically the virgin birth really was just some fabulous conception that came about later and it, it really didn't happen? Do we really need it? Ooh, that's <laughs> like, uh... And stuff like that was what, you know, there was a faithful few uh, that stood against it as far as the scholars and, and the way truth was preserved, you wonder, wondering how was it preserved? People in churches, that's how it was preserved. That's the priesthood of the believer, not the clergy, not the hierarchy, not the, the popes, you know, not the bishops. It was the people in churches who they were the salt and they were the light. And thankfully, um, you know, they did their job well, but we we do see a slight eroding. It's like the eroding of riverbanks over time. It's a little bit after a little bit, and
1: I don't think it's slight anymore. Um, no, but I mean it. <laughs> I really don't. I, I I was I'm trying to find the article. And I can't find it right now. But it's kind of it, like
0: a dam, maybe you know. It, it burst here and then here and, and, and then opened. all of a sudden, boom.
1: Yeah, no. This all thing along. was um, it was an article where s- some pastor basically said a progressive whatever pastor you want to want to call it. Came out and said that, um, and you've probably heard this before that David raped Bathsheba. Um, Uh, yeah, yeah. I've I've heard heard people speculate that. Right. But, and, you know, and they're saying that, you know, in the whole Marxist world that we're living in right now, um, that, you know, David raped Bathsheba and it was because of his power, which is kind of true because, Bathsheba couldn't deny him because he was king, but she, I think was a
0: willing participant in, in some way, because you see, that's one of those things where I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd have to check this, but we've talked about Amnon raping his sister. Yes. And, and everybody is, I mean, famous pieces of art and poems. Yes. I mean, we know that that was a rape. It's right. gone down to history as a rape. right. But, but not with David and Bathsheba. Right. It's never so said that. Right. It's never said that way. So I would say that while you and may be right, it may have been like an Esther scenario where sure. kind of taken in expectations are known. You kind of have to go along with it. Uh, but rape would be.
1: And, and you a know, different what's funny term. is that's that that is
0: exactly what the, this article was saying is
1: like, yeah, you know, it's not like we're trying to hide the term rape in the Bible because we exactly where you just talked about several places Mm -hmm. where rape the word rape is used and in the same um in second samuel i think it is yeah right same book yeah yeah the same book so um but you know it it, another part of the article he talks about where somebody had said that um they suggested that mary was raped by god you know what i mean it was like yeah right so how awful is that but it's not just that these are these people that are that are not um, people in the pews. We're talking about people, pastors preaching. This, yes,
0: yeah, I know,
1: right? So that's where we are, and I and I think the article was actually that talked about this that he was, you know, talking about was in uh, Christianity Today, yeah. it Christianity Today, which is liberal, I think, and and.
0: And in some ways, yeah. yeah, yeah. I I don't hardly read their articles because I think you got to pay to read. Do you? I don't know. Them, yeah. It sounded like it was. They kind of put
1: that out there like that. So it was. Yeah, it was an interesting thing. Um, the
0: guy that wrote it is Larry Taunton. Is the huh? Um, well, I'll I'll say this, and this is something that I I think that uh, applies to the discussion. Um. Back in the day, you had the scholars. And they were trying to trickle down their ideas, but they knew they could only do it a little bit by little bit. Mm. I mean, you, you could have people that would go into a seminary and (laughs) it'd be made pretty plain. Like the stuff that we're teaching you here, the churches are never going to take this in. Right. So you're going to have to little bit by little bit, you know, slide it in, slide it in there. But the churches were on guard at that time. I think that there was just a, a moral spiritual fiber that they had then that we don't have today. Right our churches are so lukewarm and materialistic that when this stuff is slipped in it's like they're ripe for it yeah they're ripe to be taken in the deception to be yeah. taken in the lie um and so it's it's the laodicean church yes it really is i honestly am convinced more than ever that we are living in that time as we see so many pastors fall as we see them succumb to critical race theory um as we see people just essentially become relativists yes and pluralistic yes i think that we're there yes i think there are a lot of these people who they grew up in churches and they sat under perhaps good preaching yes but uh, it's happened fast like you said yeah i mean i can think back to when i was a kid i can remember certain things like really getting the attention of the church Mm. i'll tell you one example okay Whatever your opinion is about this, hopefully you'll, you'll take this in, in good stride, those who are listening. But uh, Harry Potter,: Yes, in the '90s.: Yes. That was enough to strike up another satanic panic. It was And what that illustrates is this: the church had a very strong rea- or like reactionary attitude, like, this is a threat. Yeah. Like, let's deal with this, you yeah. know? And in some cases, that reactionary attitude may make people go overboard, but we have to say that we'd rather have it that way than have people that just let their guard down and they let anything in their churches. Little demon. It's it's better to, yes. Oh my goodness. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, it's better to err on the side of caution, mm. you know? Yeah, and uh, I'm convinced of that, absolutely. And um, we've seen how it's progressed so much, theologically and entertainment. Goodness, I can't can't let my kids watch anything now on TV. Mm-mm. Just be and, even even, even these these apps because you know they oh, have yeah. ads, and the ads are degenerate. That's right. Um, so we can't let them like we'll be watching a uh, Little House on the Prairie. We yeah. uh, prime, and then they'll have these. Uh, ads that come on. I'm like, we can't hardly, we can't even watch this family wholesome show because they throw in these filthy ads. So, I mean, I know people have probably said this before, look at what the world's come to, but uh, I think that
1: the world's come to.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there are a lot of things that are converging and we'll talk more about those another time because we're going to be doing an in time study on Sunday soon. Awesome. So anyways, we're going to stop there. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you what our sneak peek will be. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the cockatrice. If you have no idea what that means, we're going to talk about it. That's good. Uh, We're going to talk about satyrs, and we're going to talk about dragons. Dragons? So, yeah. They got got slewed. (laughs) They got slewed. (laughs) They got slewed them dragons, eh? (laughs) So, we're going to talk about that next week. Hopefully, you join us. Good night.